0: Welcome to Douglas Wilson's "The Podcast," presented by Canon Press. Yes, God. God don't never Welcome to the podcast. Yes, this is episode 219 219. I'm Douglas Wilson. Thank you for joining me. So what I want to talk about this morning isn't going to go anywhere. Well, it'll go somewhere, but you're going to have to take it there. I just want to challenge a few assumptions that I think a lot of people have. And I think questioning those assumptions might prove fruitful. So it's the difference between equality and equity. The difference between equality and equity. And uh, I know uh, we've talked about this before. In a number of different settings, because egalitarianism the the leveling impulse is behind an awful lot of our contemporary problems. but false assumptions about this have crept in to the conservative church, and in many cases just lie there dormant until they come out and wreck havoc at some time or other. What do I mean? Well, uh, there's a difference between equality before the law, which conservative Christians are all about. If someone is arrested for murder, there should be the same treatment for everyone. You shouldn't be able to convict anyone on the testimony of one witness. It's not like you get to convict a poor man on the testimony of one witness, but you need two or three to convict him if he's a rich man. Or if it's a woman, you uh, can treat her with Sort of a judicial contempt, but then you have to have a high bar of evidence if it's a man, that sort of thing. And this is a uh, this pattern for our law courts and for decisions where you're looking for equity, requiring equity, demanding equity, are all patterned after the last judgment. Uh, God is not a respecter of persons, and when we become and when we come before Him at the last day, a man who belonged to the country club is going to be on the same footing. As a man who did not. A man with a million dollars or a man with a billion dollars is going to be standing naked uh, before the Lord, and will have to give an account. Poor men, rich men, black, white, uh, male, female, slave-free, that's equity. It's even-handedness. The same standard is applied. And then you're, you're accustomed, perhaps in economic discussions, To hear conservatives talk, complain about the socialists wanting equality of outcome. And that's a good complaint as far as it goes, where the only way you can take a fast person and a slow person and uh, have them hit the finish line at the same time is by rigging the race. If you mess with the rules or cheat, you can get equality of outcome. But the problem with that illustration of Two people running a race is if you have a tall person and short person, or a man and a woman, they're all doing the same thing. They're they're running, okay. So we can see all the instances where an even-handed approach would say, well, the same rule applies to both. If a man doesn't get to shoplift a pack of gum, then a woman shouldn't get to shoplift a pack of gum. If a man can't accuse someone falsely. Uh, then a woman shouldn't be able to accuse someone falsely and so on. So that's all good. And we also recognize that we shouldn't rig the contest in order to get the same outcome. Because if if you're getting the same outcome by rigging the race, you can only get the same outcome by treating the people differently. If you treat the people the same, you're going to get different outcomes. Okay, so I know a bunch of that is review. But when it comes to sex... When it comes to the relationship of the sexes to one another, one of the things we have to recognize and have to grapple with, and I think we have not done so, is the we have to come to the the understanding that men and women are completely different. They want completely different things. Two people running, a man and a woman running in a race, want the same thing. They want to get to the finish line ahead of the other one. That's what a race is. But what if men and women are so different that they want completely different things particularly when it comes to their sexual nature their sexual desire their sexual practice so it it is it has become commonplace over the last generation or so to to say something like well women enjoy sex too and and uh, women are just as sexual as men and it's all it's all True enough. If you are, if you're careful to define your terms, yes, uh, men desire sex and women desire sex. Yes, that's all true, but they desire it in completely different ways. It's not all the same. So, testosterone is something that both men and women have. It's made, uh, well, primarily in the testes and the men and in the ovaries by the, in the women, but men have approximately 15 to 20 times the amount of testosterone sloshing around inside them uh, than the women do. And testosterone is linked to, uh, not it's not only linked to secondary sexual characteristics like beards and, and things like that, but it's also connected to sexual desire, right? So, uh, libido. And that means that a man and a woman wanting, everything else being equal, wanting a sexual relationship, are not wanting it in the same way. They're not wanting it in the same way. And the fact that the man wants it as intensely as he does is a function of how God made him, a function of his biology, and the the fact that the woman responds the way she does is a function of her biology and her desires and whatnot. And what this means is that It's not a uh, situation where we go out into a neutral marketplace of uh, sexual contracts and decide to go into partnership with another person where we both enjoy the same thing the same way and in the same respect. It's simply false. Now, like I said, we'll perhaps pursue this in further uh, installments, but right now, I would just like you to think about the fact that men are not doing the same thing that women are doing. When men are pursuing women, that's not the same thing as a woman pursuing a man. Or a man, let's say he's a godly man. He's not a skirt chaser. He's a godly man. If he's interested in a woman, he is doing something different than what the woman is doing if she's interested in him. Be Continuing on with the podcast, episode 219, This is our hamartiology section. The next word group in our study of hamartiology is quite striking and interesting. Out of all the uses of this word in Scripture, only one, only one usage is negative and sinful, and yet it's a word that represents something that most Christians would identify as sinful. In other words, this word has a bad rap, has a bad reputation in Christian circles, and yet Overwhelmingly in Scripture, the word is used positively and only once negatively. And not, not only is that the case, but the one usage where the sinfulness of the word is coming into play, uh, it does so as a matter of context. And the word is ekdikeo, ekdikeo, E K D I K E O, ekdikeo. And it means avenge. We can see from the root, dik, that it has to do with justice. And this is why the other New Testament uses are positive. Uh, Luke 18.3, Luke 18.5, 2 Corinthians 10.6, Revelation 6.10, Revelation 19.2. The one negative, the one prohibition, is found in Romans 12. Romans 12.19, 12, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place under wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Now, notice that it says that we are not to avenge ourselves, because vengeance belongs to God. It does not say that we are not to do it because vengeance is wrong. It doesn't say don't avenge yourselves because vengeance is wrong. Uh, the way it it will say that, don't, don't lust or don't steal or don't do these things because those things are wrong. Uh, those things are a violation of God's character. But here it says don't do it because to do it is to intrude upon one of God's prerogatives. So, vengeance is God's prerogative. Uh, Malice and spite and envy and lust and selfishness and pride, all of those are antithetical to God's character. But this is not antithetical to God's character. It's his prerogative. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And so, consequently, we're told, don't avenge yourselves because you have to give place to wrath. So, vengeance is not wrong. It is the Lord's. When we take vengeance into our own hands, We frequently don't know when to stop, and the thing spirals out of control. It's worth noting that here in Romans 12, it says that vengeance belongs to God, and just a few verses down, in Romans 13, it's all part of the same argument, right? In Romans 13, Paul says that God has delegated this responsibility to the civil magistrates, who are his appointed deacons of wrath. So, in Romans 12, he says, leave room for God's wrath, and then, just a few verses after that, it says, the civil magistrate is appointed as God's deacon of wrath. So I'm supposed to leave room for the deacons of wrath. So when we leave room for the vengeance of God, we are leaving room for the cops, at least when things are functioning the way they ought to be functioning. God. God don't never Continuing on with the podcast, episode 219, we come now to our book review. Section. Uh, This book is um, a book I've read a number of times. Don't know how many times I've read it, but I'm sure I'm going to read it again. I just finished it the other day again. And this is a book that was written by my dad, and it's called Principles of War. And the subtitle is a handbook on strategic evangelism. Now, I'm pretty sure over the course of the years I've been doing this podcast that I've reviewed that book before, but it's time, but just as I have read it a number of times, maybe I'll wind up reviewing it a number of times. This book is really a seminal book. It is written by uh, my dad, a true strategic thinker, uh, someone who thinks in terms of principles instead of methods. Now, every everything we do requires a method, but if you do what you do intelligently, you understand the principle underneath the method, and you don't develop a uh, an out of shape allegiance to a particular method. So, for example, with evangelism, somebody might be taught evangelism. They may have learned um, evangelism in Campus Crusade or with the Billy Graham organization or with the Navigators or D. James Kennedy's uh, Evangelism Explosion, and they learn evangelism a particular way, and then they plug and chug. They paint by numbers. They just connect the dots because this is the method. Well, what this book does is it it takes the principles of uh, physical war, Clausewitz, Sun Tzu, uh, other uh, military strategists, it takes those principles and it applies them to evangelism. Now, the principles are things that can apply and do apply equally to an army equipped with spears, chariots and bows and arrows and slings, as it does to an army with automatic weapons, air support, modern howitzers, artillery, uh, (laughs) you know, satellite-guided missiles, the whole shebang. The principles apply equally. The methods don't. A slingshot and a bow and arrow are not the same thing as a a shoulder-mounted surface-to-air missile. So, the technology changes, the weapons change but the principles don't change. Principles are things like mobility or surprise or objective or economy of force or concentration or communication. These are all principles. Now, as I was going through it, uh, going through this book yet again, I was reminded of why we're here in Moscow, Idaho. And this will give you an example of my dad's thinking on this. Uh, we're We're all here. All of these ministries are here in Moscow because my dad moved here in 1971. And he moved here because he found out that Pullman, Washington was a small town that had a major university in it, and it was eight miles away from Moscow, Idaho, which was a small town that had a major university in it. Well, in military affairs, there is this thing called the decisive point, the decisive point. And a a decisive point is a point in a battle or in the war, even, where if you take that point, if you take that position or accomplish that objective, it's strategic. It's also feasible. It's got to be a decisive point is a point that is strategic if you take it, and it's feasible. It's possible to take, right? If we took, and New York City, for example, doesn't qualify. Because New York City is strategic. If we took New York City for Jesus, it'd be all over. but it's not feasible. If we took uh, Bowville, Idaho, which is a little bend in the road, not not far from here, we could do that in two weeks. It's feasible, but it's not strategic. If we all, all we'd have to do is unload the van and then we'd have it, right? But when we had it, we, we would just have Boville. that's all we'd have. It's feasible, but not strategic. A target, an evangelistic, Target is one that ought to be feasible and strategic. It matters to the enemy if you take it, and it's feasible to take. And so my father found out this is my my dad wrote this book back in the 1960s. It was first published in the 60s. It's been in print ever since, numerous publishers at different times and places. Uh, it's sort of an underground classic. Canon Press publishes it now. You really ought to get a copy from Canon Press Principles of War. Uh, so my dad decided that this, the decisive points in North America were the result of our university system, major universities in small towns. The small town made it feasible, the university made it important. So the university made it a strategic point, and the small town made it a feasible point. And so then he found out that Moscow and Pullman, two small towns, eight miles apart, had a university in each one, and so he moved here. And that's, uh, that's why all of this stuff is pouring out. This was a decision was made back in the 70s, but all of this, um, all of the ministries and energy and things that are cascading out of Moscow are doing so as a downstream result of that decision. It's a great little book. Uh, I would encourage every pastor, everyone interested in apologetics, everyone interested in evangelism, to get that book and internalize it. The podcast will be on break till the new year, but as a special year-end gift, we'd like to give you 30 days of free access to all of the audiobooks and videos from Doug Wilson on Canon Plus. Head over to mycanonplus.com to take advantage of this limited trial offer ending January 1st. Canon Plus is home to hundreds of hours of Doug's sermons, lectures, interviews, and audiobooks. Head over to MyCanonPlus.com and start listening today. Your membership to Canon Plus is a great way to support this podcast. If you would like more audio and maybe even video content from the podcast, please consider subscribing today. Thank you and Merry Christmas from everyone here at Canon Press.